But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. That's a very famous quote. It's also a very old quote. The prophet Micah wrote those words almost 3,000 years ago, around 700 B.C., or 700 years before Christ. And that date is very important because this is a prophecy about Christ. So what we have here is pretty amazing. Hundreds and hundreds of years before Jesus came into this world, Micah announced that the Messiah would be born in the tiny, sleepy village of Bethlehem. And then seven centuries later, Micah was proven right. This morning, we're continuing our journey through the life of Jesus. And this journey is called the gospel. And today, we've reached the Christmas story. Now, we usually hear this story in December, but I'm really happy that we're not in the Christmas season right now. And here's why. In December, you've got decorations all over the place. You've got a schedule full of parties and concerts and family get-togethers. And you're thinking about the presents you have to buy or the cookies you have to make. Maybe you're thinking about the cookies you get to eat. But the point is, when we hear the story of Christmas around the holidays, we might be a little distracted. But then there's another problem. A lot of us feel like we already know the Christmas story. And, you know, December, you can just look at a nativity scene, right? That's a pretty good summary of what happened. You got Mary and Joseph, and then there's the baby Jesus, of course. And then you got a few shepherds, a few wise men, some friendly animals. And then there is a smiling angel hovering over the whole scene. So yeah, we know about Christmas. We've seen it. We've heard it. But today, we're right smack in the middle of September. And we're not surrounded by decorations and distractions. And because of that, I believe we can hear this story in a new way. We can focus on what really happened when Jesus was born. On the one hand, this story is very strange. It it almost sounds unbelievable. But then on the other hand, when we come to realize this story is actually true, Christmas becomes the best news we've ever heard. So let's get back to that quote I read a minute ago. Micah chapter 5, verse 2. But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me. One who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. So Micah wrote this message, but it's actually God speaking. And what is God telling us? Well, like I said, this prophecy is about the Messiah. And God reveals that the Messiah will come from Bethlehem. But hold on, there were several towns named Bethlehem back then, so the prophecy gets specific. Bethlehem Ephrathah is the right one. That's the town just outside of Jerusalem. It's where King David was born. So we know that the Messiah will come from the town of David. But let's look at the identity of this Messiah. Apparently, he is a king. He'll be the ruler over Israel. And what about that last part? His origins are from of old, from ancient times. 
so that means this king dates back to the ancient past. But when Micah wrote this, his coming was still in the future. The truth is, only one person could fulfill this prophecy, and that person is Jesus. Now, fast forward 700 years, and the Jewish people are still looking for the Messiah. Other people are looking for him too. Let's take a look at one of the Christmas passages in the Bible. Matthew chapter 2, starting with verse 1. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Somehow, these wise men, the Magi, they knew that a king of the Jews had been born. They also knew this would be no ordinary king. There was only one problem, though. The Jews already had a king. His name was Herod. And he wasn't liking this news from the Magi. Look at verse 3. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the, chief, the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where this Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem, in Judea, they replied. For this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Does that sound familiar? The priests and teachers answer Herod by quoting the prophet Micah. So in this one moment, there's a dramatic intersection between a Roman king, dignitaries from the east, Jewish religious leaders, and a 700-year-old prophet. And they're all talking about this baby that was born in the tiny village of Bethlehem. How did all of these elements come together? Well, let me tell you, it was no accident It was all part of a grand plan. And this plan had been established before the beginning of time. It's all coming to fruition as we see here in the Gospel of Matthew. So what was this plan? Well, we can read about that in Matthew chapter 1, verse 21, where it says, She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. So here's what that means. The story of Christmas is all about God's plan to save us. See, all of humanity was in a terrible situation. All of us were in extreme danger because in one way or another, we've all launched a rebellion against God. We've all had moments where we chose what we wanted instead of what he wanted. At one time or another, we've all said, sorry God, I'd rather run my life right now. You don't get to rule over me today. And according to God, that's not just a bad idea. That's called sin. And every sin is a declaration of war against God. And every sin is enough to sever our relationship with God forever. But there's something astonishing. The astonishing thing is, in spite of our sin, God the all-powerful creator of the universe, loves us. And because of his love, God doesn't want to be separated from us for all eternity. And that's where this rescue plan comes from. God sent a savior to save us. 
Our Savior came in the form of a baby. And in a way, this baby was completely human, like one of us. But in another way, this baby was like no one else who ever lived. Look at this description in Matthew chapter 1. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. God with us. That is no small thing. God with us is the event that some have called the greatest miracle in the history of the world. The theological name for this is the incarnation. And that word refers to the mind-blowing event when God became a man. Now that's a powerful concept, but it's also very controversial. Some people say the real God would not stoop to this level and become one of us, but the reality is God showed his greatness by becoming small. And God showed his strength by becoming weak. One way to explain this would be to tell you about my cat. Uh, In my whole life, there was only one time when I had a cat. It was when I was about eight or nine years old. And our cat's name was Debbie. My brother and I named her after our babysitter. But one day, Debbie disappeared. We didn't know where she went. And after a couple of days, though, we found her in the crawl space under our house. All of a sudden, Debbie had three kittens. My brother and I were thrilled about this, and I can remember getting on the floor and playing with those kittens. And you know, when kids do that, it's almost like they become one of the kittens playing with a ball of yarn or a cat toy or whatever. Well, a preacher named Tim Keller was talking about this very thing, and he made a very good point. You can become kittenish with your kitten, but your kitten will never help you with your math homework. And do you see the point? The greater can become lesser, but the lesser can never become greater. God could become one of us because he is greater than us, but we could never become like God, not even close. So God humbled himself in a dramatic way. Philippians chapter 2 explains that clearly. Christ made himself nothing. Christ made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. That's how dramatic this downgrade was. Jesus became nothing in comparison to what he was. So from our perspective as humans, the incarnation is truly a great event. Jesus lowered himself, demoted himself, humiliated himself. And why? Well, it was all part of this great plan to save us. So for you and me, this plan is very good news. And that's the big picture, but let's zoom in a little closer. Let's meet a few of the characters in this story. And some of these characters may seem very familiar, but we probably don't know them as well as we think we do. First, let's look at Mary and Joseph. The book of Matthew tells the Christmas story from Joseph's perspective. And then Luke tells us more about Mary's side of things. But let's start with Matthew's version. In chapter 1, verse 18, Matthew writes, This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother, Mary, was pledged to be married to Joseph. But before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. There's a lot to process in that one verse. So let's back up and get a little context. 
First, what do we know about Joseph and Mary? Well, Joseph was a Jew from the tribe of Judah. He was a descendant of David. And if you were here last week, you might remember the prophecy that said the Messiah would come from the house and the line of David. Another thing we know about Joseph is that he was a carpenter. He came from the small village of Nazareth, and he was fairly poor. And then there's Mary. Mary was a young Jewish girl, a virgin, and she was betrothed or engaged to Joseph. And Jewish girls usually married pretty young. She was probably a teenager. Many scholars believe she was 16 at the oldest. And it's helpful to understand the Jewish culture at this time. Not too long after a girl hit her teens, she was betrothed. Usually the parents chose who you would marry. Betrothal would last uh, no longer than a year before the wedding. And when you were betrothed, it was serious. It was a contract that could only be broken by death or divorce. If the man died, the woman would be considered a widow. At the same time, though, Sexual relations were strictly prohibited until after the official wedding. So this is where Mary and Joseph are when we meet them. They're betrothed or pledged to be married. But what does Matthew tell us? He says, before these two came together, Mary was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Wow, Matthew, you just dropped that bomb out of nowhere. How about a little background here? Well, this is where it's helpful to flip over to the book of Luke. In Luke chapter 1, we see the events that led up to this pregnancy. Luke says, In the sixth month, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. So this angel shows up, and Mary is freaking out a little. She is greatly troubled, and I don't blame her. But at this point, she hasn't even heard what God plans to do. That comes in the next verse. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. Now, for a teenage girl, this had to be pretty overwhelming. She's going to be the mother of a great king, someone who will rule forever. That's a huge responsibility. But before any of that, Mary has a very important question. Next verse. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? Yeah, that's a reasonable thing to ask. From a practical and a biological standpoint, how does this make sense? Well, the angel Gabriel has an explanation. Verse 35. The angel answered, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. To be honest, I don't know how Mary didn't just pass out at this point. And seriously, let's try to process what Mary is dealing with here. 
For one thing, she's trying to wrap her mind around the stupefying news that God is about to miraculously cause a baby to appear in her womb. But on top of that, there could be some devastating consequences for her personally. This would be a very difficult predicament for Mary. Remember, she is betrothed. And if she shows up pregnant all of a sudden, people will not assume that this baby is a miracle from the Holy Spirit. They'll assume that she committed adultery. And according to Jewish law, an adulteress was supposed to be stoned, executed. But let's say they go easy on her. If Mary is not killed, she will most likely lose the man she loves. She'll be brokenhearted and alone and stuck with a bad reputation. That reputation will make it very difficult for her to find another husband. And if she does remain single, Mary probably won't find a good job. In that culture, there weren't many job opportunities for single women, even those with a good reputation. So in summary, the outlook for Mary was pretty grim. If she agrees to God's plan, she may be looking at poverty, loneliness, or even death. But check this out. How does Mary respond to the angel? In Luke 1.38, she says, I am the Lord's servant. May it be to me as you have said. I don't know about you, but that is extremely moving to me. I am so humbled and so impressed by the faith of this girl. You know, Mary was human, just like us. It's not biblical, and it's not helpful to elevate her above other human beings. Because that sort of lets us off the hook. If she's above us, we could say, well, you can't expect me to have a faith like that. I'm not a saint like her. But she was like us. She would have been very afraid and overwhelmed. But despite that, Mary says, may it be to me as you have said. It's amazing. But let's jump back over to Joseph. He had his own troubles, didn't he? Mary, or Joseph learns that Mary is pregnant. And what's he supposed to do with that news? He's like everyone else. He's got to assume that Mary has been unfaithful. So basically, he's got two options. The first option is a public and humiliating trial, which might end with Mary being stoned to death. The other option is to give her a certificate of divorce. And Joseph knows if he divorces Mary, she will be defiled in the eyes of the community. But he doesn't see a better option, so he plans to pursue divorce. Before that happens, though, there is another visit from an angel. Matthew 1, verse 20. But after he had considered this, pursuing divorce, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, Because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. Now, Joseph never considered this option. Mary was not unfaithful, and she wasn't crazy either. She had just experienced a miracle. But now think about this. If Joseph takes Mary home as his wife, with her obviously pregnant, and both of them unmarried, he has to accept the fact that people will look down on them, maybe treat them pretty badly. 
They'll assume that Mary and Joseph have been sexually active before marriage. And when a couple was betrothed, uh, you're not even supposed to be alone together. Joseph knows this looks bad. And he can't even say, it wasn't me. Now, earlier I said that God's plan is good news for us. I said Christmas is the best news we've ever heard. But think about that moment when Mary and Joseph agreed to participate in God's plan. It looked like they were signing up for some real hardship. But there's a principle here that is often true. Sometimes surrendering to God's plan may look like bad news before it becomes good news. I'll give you an example. Let's say there's a particular situation where you know that God wants you to be generous. You know he wants you to make some kind of financial sacrifice. That may give you a little anxiety, right? You may be a little concerned about what that sacrifice may cost you, and you may be hesitant because you don't want to give up certain things that you like. When God calls you to be generous, it may feel like bad news at first. But then what happens? When you surrender to God's plan, you find out that giving is better than receiving. Generosity brings a huge blessing into your life. Over a year ago, we gave a, cha- a challenge to sponsor a child through Missions of Hope. Many of you chose to be generous. You chose to make a difference in the life of a child. The children we sponsor are from the slums of Nairobi, Kenya. And our support provides for their basic needs and their education, but they also get to hear about Jesus, and they get to learn what it means to follow him. Plum Creek is currently sponsoring 77 children And if you are one of those sponsors, I'm willing to bet that you have been blessed by blessing a child. In fact, uh, we have a group heading over to Kenya next month. And I was excited to learn that all of us who are sponsors will be able to send a video message to the child we support. Two weeks from today, we'll be recording those messages in the prayer room before and after each service. We're going to connect with these kids like never before, and that's going to be another blessing. But this is what I'm talking about. Surrendering to God's plan often looks like bad news before it becomes good news. Joseph and Mary learned this lesson in a powerful way. They said yes to God, and it was incredibly scary to do that, but then they were blessed in a completely unique way. Let's read about that. It's time we got to the most famous part of the Christmas story, Luke chapter 2. If you only hear one passage at Christmas time, it's probably going to be this one. So here we go, Luke 2 verse 1. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria, and everyone went to their own town to register. Now, I want to pause real quick before we get back to Joseph and Mary. It's kind of extraordinary that Caesar Augustus has a part to play in this story. Because at this point in history, Augustus is the most powerful man on earth. He was the first emperor of the Roman Empire. And Rome was one of the greatest superpowers the world has ever seen. But as Augustus ruled from his palace, do you know what he thought about the birth of Jesus? He wasn't thinking about it at all. He was clueless. But you know, 
God used him to play an important role in this story. Because at some point during his reign, Augustus decided to make, to take a census. He thought it was his idea. He wanted everyone to be counted because he wanted Rome to collect all the taxes they could. Well, look at what happens here. Luke 2, verse 4. So, because of the census, Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and the line of David. Without that decree from Caesar Augustus, Mary and Joseph never would have gone to Bethlehem. They would have stayed in Nazareth. And why does that matter? Well, you know why, don't you? The prophet Micah foretold that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. And to fulfill that promise, God used Caesar Augustus to get Mary to Bethlehem in time for the birth. I think that's very cool. But it's no big surprise, really. Proverbs 21 verse 1 says, A king's heart is like streams of water in the Lord's hand. He directs it wherever he chooses. So it doesn't matter who's in power. It doesn't matter who thinks they are in charge. The truth is, God is in charge. He's always in charge. And he's always working behind the scenes to accomplish his plan. And you might say, well, if that's true, why is the world such a mess? Or why is my life such a mess? But we have to remember, God's not done yet. For everyone who loves God, he works all things together for good. And in the end, if you belong to Jesus, God's goodness will overcome every bad experience you've ever had. In the meantime, though, God is still working And he'll even use like someone like Caesar Augustus to accomplish his purpose. But let's get back to Mary and Joseph before we run out of time. We finally made it to where Jesus is born. Luke chapter 2 verse 5. So Joseph went there to Bethlehem to register with Mary who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. So, the prophecy of Micah had come true and the messages from the angel had come true. Jesus was here. God was with us. Now, the setting was humble, embarrassing even. I'm guessing that Joseph was ashamed that he couldn't take better care of his wife and his baby boy. I mean, they had to put Jesus in a manger. And a manger is a feeding trough for animals. Normal people didn't do that. But again, this was all part of the plan. Jesus made himself nothing. He didn't come in with fanfare and adoration like what you would expect with the birth of a great king. When Jesus was born, it seemed like nobody even noticed. But God had his own fanfare in mind. Let's keep reading. We're up to verse 8 now. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today, in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. 
you will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly, a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven, and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. You know, this is actually comical. God sends, God sends an army of angels to announce the birth of Jesus. And who gets to be the first to hear the news? It wasn't Caesar Augustus. It wasn't King Herod. It wasn't the Jewish priests or the teachers of the law. It was a bunch of shepherds. And this is crazy because shepherds in Israel were despised. Uh, people thought of them as unreliable, untrustworthy, dirty The Jews considered the shepherds unclean because their work kept them from participating in many of the Jewish religious rituals. So God seems to be making a statement here. For everyone who is like the shepherds, for everyone who's been marginalized or ostracized, you are not excluded. The good news of the gospel is for you too. So the shepherds are the first to hear this announcement. And there is no way for us to imagine what they actually saw that night. The shepherds got to witness the glory of God, a a brilliant light that's like nothing we've ever seen. And then that angel spoke to them. And when the angel spoke, it would have been like the rest of the world just melted away. I'm sure all they could do was just look at him and listen to him. And the angel said, The Messiah is here. Your Savior has been born. Go see him. The angel also gave them directions. He said, the baby you're looking for is the one in the feeding trough. So what do the shepherds do next? Verse 16. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. So at first, only Mary and Joseph and the shepherds knew about the birth of this king. But the news spread quickly, didn't it? The shepherds ran, ran around telling everybody they could about this baby. And did you catch the response? All who heard it were amazed. The good news is available for anyone who is willing to listen. God invites everyone everywhere to be a part of his plan. But you do have to listen. And you do have to respond. You have to get on board with God's agenda and stop trying to hold on to your own. You know, if King Herod had been willing to listen, he could have been a part of God's plan. Herod could have been saved. I mean, he he heard that prophecy from Micah that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. But as far as we know, Herod never was willing to listen because he was too wrapped up in himself. It was the same thing for many of the Jewish religious leaders. They could have been a part of God's plan too. I mean, God had given them a heads up and they knew those prophecies backwards and forwards. But as the story of Jesus continues, we'll see that many of those religious leaders were too proud to humble themselves. They thought they didn't need a savior. 
So they just didn't listen to Jesus. But what about you? Are you listening to God today? He has something to say to you right now. He's he's calling you in some way right now. He's inviting you to be a part of his plan. Now, if you haven't given your life to Jesus, that's how you can listen to God and respond. You, You can surrender your life to him today. But even if you are a follower of Jesus, God is still inviting you right in this room. In this moment, maybe he's calling you to do something that seems pretty difficult. Maybe it it seems scary to say yes to God. Maybe it, it looks like you'd be signing up for some bad news. But you know, when you surrender to God, the bad news doesn't last. The good news eventually overpowers the bad news. In the end, we can trust God. We can trust that his plan is always the best plan. Let's pray. Father, I thank you once again for your word. As we go back to these stories that may feel feel familiar to us, I know that you still have something to say to us. There's, There's a lot that we still don't understand. But God, I, I pray that you will help us to listen to you. Help us to be clear about how you're calling us today. And Lord, help us to respond with faith and trust. That even if you're calling us to do something difficult or scary, even if we think there could be some negative consequences if we say yes to you, Lord, help us to know that the bad news is eventually replaced by good news. You have a good plan for us. It's good for us. But even more than that, when we say yes to you, we give you glory. And I know that's why we're here. That's why we exist, to bring glory to you. This life is not about us. It's about you. Help us to see that. Help us to understand that. Help us to live that way. I pray that in Jesus' name, amen.